Welcome to message number two in our series, The King Size Challenge. The Bible is challenging us to face these defining moments of these Old Testament kings. These 10 kings faced their defining moments. You will face these defining moments. A defining moment is a moment that defines your life. A defining moment is a moment that's so significant, your life is gonna go one way or another depending on how you face this moment. And the key scripture for this series has been Romans 15, four, everything written in the past about these kings, we could say, was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So we're studying these 10 kings and we're trying to discover instruction and encouragement and hope to face our defining moments. Now, last Sunday, we faced Rehoboam's king-size blunder. Rehoboam, you recall, he chose to listen to the advice he wanted to hear, but he rejected the advice he needed to hear. His blunder was so great, it resulted in the division, the split of the entire nation of Israel. It was an incredible price to pay for such a blunder. This morning, we're gonna discover and study and face Jeroboam's king-size problem. Now, all of us have problems. You have problems, I have problems, we all have problems. Problems come in different shapes, they come in different sizes, and can result in different consequences, especially if we don't face them properly or correctly. A king-size problem is a problem that's so big, if you don't face it correctly, it can have devastating and even catastrophic consequences in your life, as well as in the lives of others. Let's see if you can identify Jeroboam's king-size problem. You should have your Bibles. Open them to the book of 1 Kings chapter 12. Now, let me give you a little hint as you're turning there. Jeroboam's problem manifested itself 2,900 years ago in this very spot. I'm gonna show you some pictures right now. This is a high place we call a high place in Israel. It is a holy place, a place of worship, and it's in a place called Dan. This is Dan. We visited this just a bit ago. And Jeroboam's problem didn't begin here, but it manifested itself here. The next slide. Here I'm standing on this spot, and then we've got one more picture that I took a good perspective of this high place. Any guesses? what Jeroboam's problem might have been. Just think about it. Let me give you a little background to Jeroboam before we jump into our text. He became, or he, he, he was, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite. Jeroboam became the servant of Solomon, but he rose to prominence as one of Solomon's servants. And he became a spokesperson, a kind of ambassador to the various tribes of Israel, um, while the kingdom was united under Solomon. Jeroboam's influence became so great and so strong, especially with the northern tribes, that Jeroboam, behind Solomon's back, plotted a coup, a takeover. Solomon got word of the potential coup, and Jeroboam fled to Egypt for his life. After Solomon died in 931 B.C., the kingdom fell to Rehoboam, which we talked about last Sunday. Rehoboam, the eldest son of Solomon, became king. The northern tribes 
invited Jeroboam back to Israel to be their spokesperson, to negotiate better conditions for the 10 tribes. Specifically, they wanted less labor and less taxes under Rehoboam's reign. But due to Rehoboam's king-sized blunder that we studied last Sunday, he refused to listen to the advice he needed to hear, and the kingdom split in 931 BC. Rehoboam fled from Shechem, the place of the failed negotiation, to Jerusalem, where Jerusalem would become the capital for the northern kingdom, which would be called Israel under Rehoboam's leadership. Jeroboam, meanwhile, is in Shechem. There's a failed negotiation. He's the most prominent, well-spoken person, and there, the people crown him their king over the northern kingdom, over 10 tribes, the northern kingdom. And Jeroboam's capital becomes Shechem. Jeroboam would reign for 22 years, but you can't imagine the problem that would dominate Jeroboam's life and reign because he failed to face a defining moment correctly. By the way, we're talking about Jeroboam the first here. There was a Jeroboam the second, but he comes much later in history. We're not gonna be studying him in this series. Let's pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 12, and let's start in verse 20. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned from these negotiations and that Rehoboam fled, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Here, Job, Jeroboam is crowned the first king over the northern kingdom called Israel. Look at verse 25. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went on and he built up to Peniel. So far, so good. Jeroboam is doing what any king should do. He's fortifying his kingdom. Notice, however, the defining moment. Notice how things turn unbelievably dark in verse 26 and following. Jeroboam thought to himself, it's never good just to think to yourself. The kingdom, he begins to think, will now likely revert to the house of David. That's the southern kingdom where Rehoboam is reigning. If these people go up and offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, remember, every Jew is required to go to Jerusalem three times a year, pilgrim, there and worship the Lord. And he knows that all the Israelis in the northern 10 tribes will make their way back to Jerusalem. And he begins to think, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. This is how he's thinking. What does he do? After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. I mean, that's a long walk. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. Now, why Bethel and Dan? Here's a map of the northern kingdom. And you'll notice that in the farther, for this southern region, here is a map in the <laughs> northern kingdom. There you go. And you can see that you've got Bethel, which here's Israel. There's the southern kingdom, Judah. There's Israel, the northern kingdom. Here's Bethel, the furthest southern part in the northern kingdom of Israel. And here's Dan, the farthest north. So he's strategically thinking, Jeroboam's, okay, I'll set up a place they can worship here and a place they can worship here, and they won't go to Jerusalem. Look what happens. And Jeroboam built shrines on the high places, 
man in death hell. And appointed priests from all sorts of people. These aren't God's priests, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Wow. Here is Israel's king. Imagine this. Called to lead God's people by way of example into the worship of the one true God, Yahweh, according to the Ten Commandments and the law, and here he is leading God's people into full-blown idolatry, worship of false gods in total defiance to everything taught in the Old Testament. I think it's pretty obvious. What is Jeroboam's problem? It is full-blown what? Idolatry. Idolatry. Doesn't idolatry sound so archaic, so primitive, so irrelevant, isn't idolatry something people just experienced in the Old Testament when they constructed literal idols like calves and shrines and altars? I mean, Jeroboam, he obviously struggled with the problem of idolatry, but we don't struggle with the problem of idolatry today, do we? Take your Bibles. Turn to the left of 1 Kings and go back to the book of Exodus. I want us to look at the Ten Commandments briefly, God's guidelines for our life. Exodus chapter 20. <clears throat> and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then the Ten Commandments that he gives us. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The first four commandments are having to do with our vertical relationship with God. The last six have to do with the horizontal Honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't covet. Now let's go from 10 all the way back to 1. Not covet. Well, I've, you'd probably say I've done that before. Not false testimony, yeah, I've done that, I've lied. Steal, yep, done that. Commit adultery, well, maybe I have, maybe I haven't. Murder, no, I haven't done that, at least not you know, physically, but maybe I have in my mind. Honor your father and mother. Yeah, there's been times that I haven't done that, haven't upheld that one. Remember the Sabbath day? No, there's times I don't do that. Misuse the name of the Lord our God? Yeah, I've done that. You shall have no other gods before me and not make an idol. <laughs> Got that one. I haven't done that one. I think that's what most of us would say, and yet Martin Luther said this. You can't violate the other nine without breaking the first commandment. Enter the book by Kyle Eidelman called Gods at War, which I will be quoting from extensively, and I recommend you buying this book because it's so instructive about this whole theme, best book I've read on idolatry. Idolatry isn't just one of many sins. Rather, it's the one great sin that all others come from. So if you start scratching at whatever struggle you're dealing with, you'll eventually find that underneath it all is a false God. Idolatry isn't an issue. It is the issue. 
There are a hundred million different symptoms, but the issue is always idolatry. When we hear God say, you will have no other gods before me, we think of it as a hierarchy. God is always first place, but there are no places. God isn't interested in competing against others or being first among many. God will not be part of any hierarchy. God declines to sit atop an organizational flowchart. He is the organization. He is not interested in being president of the board. He is the board. And life doesn't work until everyone else sitting around the table in the boardroom of your heart is fired. He is God, and there are no other applicants for that position. There are no partial gods, no honorary gods, no interim gods, no assistance to the regional gods. God is saying this not because he is insecure, but because it's the way of truth in this universe, which is his creation. Only one God owns it and operates it. Only one God designed it, and only one God knows how it works. He is the only God who can help us, direct us, satisfy us, and save us. The people, made in a, the people made a calf on Mount Sinai. They bowed before an image made of gold. They traded their glorious God for a statue of a grass-eating bull. That's not a good trade. They traded the creator God for a God of their own creation. Are we really any different? We replace God with statues of our own creation, a house that we constantly upgrade, a promotion that comes with a corner office, a team that wins the championship, a body that is toned and fits. We work hard at molding and creating our golden calves. I already hear what you are thinking. You could say that about anything. You could take any issue, anything someone devoted anything to, and make it out to be idolatry. Exactly. Anything at all can become an idol once it becomes a substitute for God in our lives. Anything that becomes the purpose or driving force of your life probably points back to idolatry of some kind. Think about what you have pursued and created and ask yourself, why? If you have a food addiction, why? If you plan to go shopping this weekend, even though you are drowning in debt, why? If you spent countless hours fixing up the car and redecorating the house, why? To, th to think of these things as forms of idolatry we need to use new imagery. Discard the idea of golden cows and multi-armed figurines. The next exercise may seem a bit weird, but stick with me. I want you to reimagine idolatry as a tree. As a tree. Set it in your mind, one of those great oak trees that seem older than time itself, one with impressive branches reaching out in every direction, branches growing from branches. Imagine this tree of idolatry with many branches, each with something tied to it. From one of the branches dangles a pot of gold. Another branch grows all kinds of food. Another branch is really a mirror that shows an idolized reflection of yourself. Yet another branch is carved with beautiful craftsmanship. You, you follow its sinuous lines and realize it is the image of two human beings entwined in a sensuous embrace. One branch has a fruit, different sets of keys, one set to a luxurious car, another to a beach house in Florida. Quite a peculiar tree. It has many other branches, 
each one with a curious item attached to it. Here's the point. Idolatry is the tree from which all our sins and struggles grow. Idolatry is always the issue. It's the trunk of the tree, and all other problems are just the branches. Wow. Could we be struggling with Jeroboam's king-size problem in 2014? Let's explore this, shall we? Here's a definition of idolatry. Idolatry is anything that becomes a substitute for God in our lives. That's idolatry. Anything that becomes a substitute for God in our lives. Anyone or anything that replaces God. Matthew 22, 37, the most important commandment in all the Bible. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. Anything that competes with loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind is an idol. Idolatry is worshiping anything or anyone other than God. If there's any consolation to all of this, guess what? All of us struggle with idolatry. Turn to your neighbor right now and say, yep, you are an idolater. I can tell some of you are enjoying that. Those of you at your small group on video watching this, turn to the leader of that small group and point to him and say, you are an idolater. Yes. Now, Eidelman, in his book, describes nine contemporary idols, false gods, that our culture is constantly dangling before us, seeking to replace the one true God. So my question for you this morning, we'll get back to the text in a little bit, but which of these false gods are seeking to replace the one true God in your hearts? In other words, which idol, false god today, do you most struggle with? Which idol is most tempting to you? Nine false gods of our culture. Let's start with the first false god. First false god is the god of food. Oh, I hear the groans already. Man, come on. Red velvet cake. Yeah, okay. I know you're dishing it out, but I can bring it back, Dorn. <laughs> Think about how the God of food works. Imagine walking into one of his favorite temples, the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> Ever been there? It's one of my favorites, too. As the hostess shows you your table, you steal glances what, as, at what others are having. This decision will be tough. At the table, she hands you a menu that is so thick it has to be divided into chapters. You don't even know where to begin in such a taste bud fantasy land. Now watch this. There's nothing wrong with eating at the Cheesecake Factory. It's not idolatry and to enjoy a great meal. The problem comes when we start to look for food to do what the Lord God alone wants to do in our lives. Wow. Page 100. Or page 84. Instead of turning to God, do we try to treat a troubled soul as if it were a growling stomach? We even have a term for it. We call it comfort food. But think about this. The comforter is what God calls himself. He is the God of all comforts. Is food taking you away from the God of all comforts? It's become an idol. 
Then there's the God of sex. The God of sex. Sex is good. I just want to be real clear about that early on. In fact, sex is a gift from God himself. But isn't it amazing how some of the richest and most beautiful gifts from God are often the same gifts that become twisted into hideous and destructive idols? When we begin to worship this God of pleasure instead of the God who gave it to us, we discover that the pleasure is lost. We discover the devastating paradox that when we pursue pleasure as a God, pleasure disappears. More money is spent on pornography in this country every year than on rock music, country music, jazz music, and classical music put together. More money is spent on pornography than on pro baseball, basketball, and football combined. Last year, it grossed more than ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox combined. It is an industry worth more than $10 billion annually. It's just looking at pictures, we say. It's harmless entertainment. No, it's not really. It's a form of worship. It's the laying of our souls on the altar before a God who only wants to consume us. You are giving your heart to this God and everything flows from the heart. Eventually the garbage makes its way downstream and comes to the surface. And then he says this, and I have to agree, one of the saddest parts of my job is seeing people spend their lives worshiping a God that takes away everything and leaves them with nothing. Is the God of food, the God of sex, becoming a replacement, a substitute for the one true God? Then there's the God of entertainment. Oh, yes. Charles Peblish, he says this, America's newest and fastest growing religion is entertainment, far out outdistancing whatever is in second place. Its temples are the great stadiums that are sacred ground to many sites of weekend pilgrimage. Its priests are in the zebra stripes. Its gods wear the names on the back of their jerseys. Its liturgy is fan chants, and its sacrifices are the vast amounts of money that fans pay for tickets and team gear. But the god of the pigskin isn't the only entertainment deity. How about the world of celebrities and the incredible amount of attention that people devote to showbiz couples and activities? Consider that the average American watches more than four and a half hours of television every day. In the average home in the U.S., the set is on for more than eight hours, and it offers more than 100 channels, the god of this world. You know, when I'm in India... I go down the streets, and it blows me away. I look through the windows, and I see in India that they worship 33 million gods, and there is always idols in every house. And you will see as you walk by families paying homage. And yet I drive home from work at night, and I see these glowing blue in every home with families hovered around looking. Are they worshiping? I see people consumed on their cell phones, almost addicted. Is this become a God? Are we giving more time to the God, Yahweh, or is this becoming our God, the God of entertainment? We were made for God, and until he is our greatest pleasure, all the other pleasures of this life will lead to emptiness. Augustine expressed this in his prayer nearly 15 centuries ago. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. We've got to keep going. The God of success, page 133. The God of success has no problem finding followers. He's attractive, compelling, charismatic. He offers us applause and the envy that makes life sweet. You can run the whole thing. It's your life. 
So why shouldn't you be at the wheel? He plays in the most basic problem of humanity, pride. The God of success gives us very convenient ways to keep score. A title after our name, the sum on our paycheck, the square footage of our new house. We put our hope and find our identity in what the God of success offers. And so we climb and claw our way to the top. Page 147, success is hearing Jesus say to you one day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. How are you measuring success? Has it become a replacement for the one true God? The God of money, the next God, page 152. The God of money has been around a long time. Back in the day, you knew him as, the, as, as gold or silver, and before that, heads of cattle or animal skins or anything that could be traded. These days, he goes as cash, dough, bacon, Benjamins, moolah, hundies, and the list goes on. He might take the form of a plastic card or might be a file named portfolio. Money. The God of money is often God's main competition for our hearts. The problem isn't money. Money isn't the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money is, the worship of money. Money is amoral. It's not good or bad in and of itself, but it holds the most potential to become for us a God substitute, the next God, the God of achievement, page 171. We're built to bow. We must find someone or something to serve. It's not surprising that in our culture, personal achievement is a very powerful an alluring idol. Page 183. Achievements are good things until they become our gods. They can help make this world a better place. But in the end, we can't put our faith in them because they shrivel like all the stuff of the world as they are blown away. Then there's the God of romance. The God of romance. Page 197. Romantic love is a good thing, but when we make it essential to life, then it becomes a false god. When we put our hope in romantic love and sacrifice so much for it, you have to ask if this beautiful gift from God has actually replaced him. When that happens, the ending rarely is happily ever after. Page 200. When we look at someone other than God to complete us and define our lives, it's idolatry. It's also futile because God is the only one who can complete us. Spoiler alert, when you make a relationship with someone else your God, it will eventually be marked with disappointment and bitterness. What you're really saying is, I want you to be a God to me. The truth is, you and I were made for a love so much deeper, far richer than what any human relationship can offer. Don't misunderstand. Marriage is good. God isn't against it. In fact, he's the, only, he's the one who came up with it. But as fantastic as human love is, it can never be a substitute for God's love. The void in the human heart is God-shaped, not mate-shaped. Wow. Then there's the God of family. God of family, page 209. According to the Ten Commandments, we are to honor our parents, but we are to worship only the Lord God. Page 213. The more beautiful a thing is, the more capacity it has to become an idol. The more I fear losing it, the more likely I am to worship it. When God gave us a child, he gives us a beautiful gift. And he says, this is something I want you to have. I've made it just for you. But can you love it without worshiping it? So I must guard my heart to keep 
loving her or him, my child, in the context of my worship of God and of God alone. Then there's the God of me, chapter 2, 28. I don't mean me, I mean you. (laughs) You're on drugs if you seek to worship me. (laughs) And looking at some of you, you might be. No, I'm just joking. Just joking. Come on. The God of me. Will I worship God and find my true peace in this universe? The perfect place he has arranged for me? Or will I worship me and decide I can somehow come up with a better life than the creator of all could design? You'll confront many of the gods in our lineup at some point in your life, but this is the one you'll grapple with every single day, multiple times per day. Now watch this. All of these things are not bad in and of themselves. You've got to understand that. Food, sex, entertainment, success, money, achievement, romance, family, me, all of it has its proper context. The question becomes, are we allowing any of these things to replace God? And if so, we are struggling. We have crossed the line of idolatry. That is idolatry. And we all struggle with this. That's why the book of 1 John says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, before we talk about how you deal with the problem of idolatry, which we're going to answer, let's a little bit talk here about our idolatry. I mean, let's be honest, okay? Let's talk about this. Here's the discussion question. Of the nine gods of our culture, which one is most, trying, most tempting trying to replace the one true God in your life? Would you talk about one? Go for it. Okay, let's talk about three ways to face the problem of idolatry. How do we face this problem that we all struggle with? You've got to do, watch this, the exact opposite of what Jeroboam did. We learn by doing the opposite of what he did. And this is the first thing. We face the problem of idolatry when we invite God into our thought life. In verse 26, Jeroboam thought to himself. If you just think to yourself only and you never invite God into your thought life, you will fall deeply into idolatry. It will consume your life. Jeroboam should have turned to God, but instead he blocked God out of his thinking, and that always leads to idolatry. Unless you and I fill our minds with the thoughts of God and his word, our minds will get filled with the gods and idols that dominate our culture and that will lead us into idolatry. These nine gods are everywhere, like neon signs, grappling for your attention. You've got to combat that with the word of God. That's why we are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We do what we do because we feel the way we feel, and we feel the way we feel because we think the way we think. I've taught you this before. Um, Our thinking impacts how you feel. Why do you feel the way you feel? Because the way you think the way you think. And then from your feeling comes what you do. The only way you control what you do is by thinking the right way you should think, and then it affects your emotions and it affects your behavior. That's how you change your life, thinking. The way to ultimately change our idolatrous tendencies, what we are doing in false worship, is to not leave God out of our thought life. You leave God out of your thought life, you are hook, line, and sinker gone. You have no chance. The gods of this world are too powerful. 
And the Bible just, it says this everywhere. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That is, don't be idolatrous. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've got to renew your mind in the word of God. John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. You know what the word sanctify means? It means to set you apart from sin or idolatry unto God or unto the Savior. That only happens by the truth. And thy word is truth. If you're not in the Bible, you are falling into idolatry. Just There's no way you can escape it. Because you are created, your soul, your mind for something. That is God. You need to be in the word. So do I. Psalm 119, verse 9, verse 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? In other words, how can you live in a world that's idolatrous but not be idolatrous? And worship the one true God. By living according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you And I'm telling you, we know this, Jeroboam ran from the word of God. He didn't think about God. And guess what? He fell big time, big time, big time. We face idolatry when we invite God into our thought life. Second way, we we combat idolatry. We face the problem of idolatry when we choose to follow God regardless of our circumstances. It takes a choice, a big time hard choice. Jeroboam he allowed his circumstances, the politics of power and position, to move him from following God to following other gods. He convinced himself, if I don't follow other gods and get my people, the northern kingdom, to follow these gods, I'm going to lose my people to the southern kingdom of Judah. And he, he just convinced himself this would be the case. They're going to reject me as king and kill me. So he built all these shrines and Dan and Bethel and all that, and all these idolatrous practices For political purposes, Jeroboam chose idolatry and chose to incite the people into idolatry. Now watch this. The enemy, known as Satan and his demons, will bring all sorts of circumstances into our lives. This is known as temptation. To get us to forsake following God and tempt us to follow other gods or idols. Why did Jeroboam fall into idolatry? He chose idolatry. With thought and premeditation, he decided to worship idolatry false gods. And the same is true with us. Every time we, quote, fall into idolatry, it's because we've made the choice, the decision to worship that false god. Why do we allow food or sex or entertainment or romance to to replace God in our lives? Because we made the choice to do that. We felt pressured or whatever, but ultimately it comes down to us, we just made the choice. You want to change your idolatrous practices, you need to make different choices in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want to overcome idolatry, you got to make some hard choices in advance, right now. You don't wait for tomorrow, right now. Stop being dictated your life by your circumstances. You got to make a choice. And nowhere is this more vividly demonstrated than in the life of Joshua, chapter 24. Joshua 24. Joshua brings the children into Israel, and then he's about ready to die, and he brings it in chapter 24, verse 14. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your forefathers that they worship beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Ammonites, that sex, idolatry, whatever it is we could say for today, these nine gods in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, he says, we will serve the Lord. You need to make a choice. 
So do I. As this day, make a choice. Who are you going to serve? Idols are defeated not primarily by removing them because for the most part you can't. They're everywhere. Idols are defeated by replacing them with a choice, a commitment, a dedication, a passion to follow, to serve, to love, to honor God no matter what, no matter what the circumstances. Have you said in your life, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm not going to serve these false gods. You have to get up in the morning and make that choice every single day. It's a battle. The gods of this world are thirsty. They're hungry for your soul. They are relentless. They want to find their place in your heart. They want to move in, settle down, take over, dominate. You better rise up, oh mighty warrior, or you are wiped out. Wiped out. Mm. It's a battle. How do you combat idolatry? As for me and my house, we will serve God. No to those gods. Yes to my God. It takes that. It's called being a man. Dads, be leaders in your homes. Be that man that says, for me in my house, and by example, we will serve God. Mm. You combat idolatry by making a choice. And then with that choice comes the casting out of idols. Look at verse, if you would, 22 to 24 there, back in Joshua, where we see this. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you. Get rid of them then. You make a choice, then you get rid of the idols. One of the most moving things that I ever experienced with a family that came to Christ, they had a Hindu background, they came to Jesus and they invited myself and Tracy to their house to bless it and purify their home. We were like, why? Because we're Hindus and they had an entire, their whole living room was nothing but a shrine of idols. They came to Christ and you see this verse, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We all have our idols. Some of us just think because we don't have idols literally lined up. No, there are nine idols we just studied. And this family said, Mark, we cleaned house. We threw everything in a dumpster. We, we sanded that whole wall. We repainted it. We redecorated. Will you please come in and pray room by room in our house? And it was beautiful. You talk about someone taking on idolatry. Some of us need to get rid of our TVs or our computers, whatever it is. I don't know what it is. To serve the living and the true God. Mm. How do you combat idolatry? It's gotta, it starts with your thought life being in the word and that second you choose to follow God regardless of your circumstances you get rid of the idols wow the third is this we face the problem of idolatry when we respond to God's warnings with repentance now first Kings 13 this is where it turns wild let's go back here and let's check out what's going on with old Jeroboam Chapter 13, 1 Kings, by the word of the Lord, a man of God came to Judah to Bethel. Now, here's one of the shrines. This man is a prophet. We don't know him, don't know his name, but as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering, he cried out against the altar. I mean, this idolatrous 
you know, thing going. He cries out against this altar by the word of the Lord. And he says, oh, altar, altar. This is what the Lord says. He says, a son named Josiah will be born. That will be a future king to the house of David, the southern kingdom. On you, he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here. In other words, this king's going to bring judgment on this whole scene. And human bones will be burned on you. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. He said this, this is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar that you're right now sacrificing on Jeroboam will split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard this prophecy of this man of God that he cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand. Imagine Jeroboam. He's like, seize him, you know, something like that. Stretched out his hand from the altar, seize him, but the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up. Can you, I mean, just shriveled up. I don't know what that looked like so that he could not even pull it back. I mean, Jeroboam's freaking out. His hand was smitten by God right then. Also, the altar was split apart, and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. The altar is literally turns to dust. His hand shrivels up. Then the king said to the man of God, intercede with the Lord your God. Pray for me. I mean, Jeroboam's freaking out. He's saying this, that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord, and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. Wow, what a moment. Do you see what God is doing, though? See, God loves Jeroboam, and God loves you. He loves me. And God is reaching out to Jeroboam. He's dramatically warning Jeroboam about the severity of his, of his idolatrous sin. And to show Jeroboam that he's the only true God, he smites Jeroboam's hand. And then even as Jeroboam is crying out for mercy to be healed, God restores his hand absolutely anew. And I don't know about you, but I think I would have repented of my sin at that very moment. At least I hope I would have. But notice, if you would, the depth of Jeroboam's idolatrous sinfulness. At the end of the chapter, it says this. Even after this, verse 33, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. You know, every king after Jeroboam, 19 that followed him, in the next 209 years, did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Jeroboam's wicked idolatry got passed on to them until the, until the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. What a terrible legacy. Jeroboam would eventually himself be judged by God himself. God would literally strike Jeroboam down. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles 13.20. What's the point? The point is this. God in his grace loves us so much that he reaches out to us and warns us about our idolatry, wanting us to repent. Maybe God is using this message to warn you. Maybe you've had a moment in your past where you got caught in an idolatrous practice. As a pastor who's been in ministry 30 years, you would not believe the stories I've heard of men and women who have confessed to me moments in their life. Adultery forgery, pornography, tax evasion, substance abuse, prostitution. I've heard it all. What these people were telling me is this. God was trying to warn me, trying to get my attention in that moment. 
We face the problem of idolatry when we respond to God's warnings, beloved, with repentance. We do the exact opposite. Jeroboam didn't repent. God gave him a warning. I mean, I can't imagine a more clear warning. And we see there in chapter 13, verse 33, it says, even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways. He didn't repent. Repentance is metanoia in the Greek. It means to change your mind. You see, we don't have the power to change our behavior. You understand that? We have the power with the Holy Spirit to change our mind and to admit something as sin. And when you change your mind about a sin, then God gives you the power to change your life. It starts in your mind. If Christianity is a religion, it is a religion of the mind. But it's not a religion. But it starts there, beloved. It starts with repentance, admitting that this is a sin. The Bible says it's repent then and turn to God. It starts with repentance in your mind, and then you turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Some of you are in desperate need of just being refreshed. Refreshment. You need to be refreshed because you're in bondage to some area. God says repent. How do we face the problem of idolatry? Do the opposite of what Jeroboam did. Are you struggling with it? We all do. I struggle with idolatry. We all do. It's so tempting, so alluring to replace God with a false God. What do you do? You invite God into your thought life. I mean, you're in this book. Every morning, I am in this book because I do not want to fall to the gods of this world. He alone is my God. As for me and my house, I choose Jesus. I choose his word. And it means that you've got to choose to follow God every day, regardless of your circumstances, and then get rid of those idols, and thirdly, respond to God's warnings with repentance. When God does come to you and he warns you about an area of idolatry, you repent. You say, God, you see my heart. You're right, I've fallen. I turn my mind to agree with you about that sin. Now would you give me the power to walk after you? All right. I want to close in a very powerful way and read you something, but I want you to talk about this first. Of the three ways to face the problem of idolatry, which one is maybe the most important step for you to integrate into your own life? Would you talk about that? Then we'll come back. Okay, here is the final question that I want to ask and have you process in your own heart. Here's the question. Are you willing to face Jeroboam's king-size problem, the problem of idolatry? Are you willing to face it in your own life? I share with you this series is a series about all the defining moments we're going to face. Last week, who are you going to listen to? This Sunday? Hmm. What God are you going to follow is the issue. Jeroboam faced this defining moment as a king. Who was he going to worship? Who was going to be his God? Would he worship the one true God or would he replace the one true God with the idols of his day, the idols of his day? We have the idols of our day. In the same defining moment we face every day, all the time. How will we face the problem, the temptation of idolatry, the nine gods of our culture are constantly knocking at our heart's door, wanting to make themselves at home. The God of food, sex, entertainment, success, money, achievement, romance, family, me, 
and there are a myriad of other gods as well. And the three thoughts we've given you from Jeroboam's bad example to do the opposite, invite God into your thought life. Invite him into your thought life. You can't be idolatrous and read the Bible at the same time. So if there's an area, just replace it with consuming your heart and mind with the Word of God. Years back, when I used to struggle, I mean, I still, but I used to really struggle with areas of idolatry. I would read chapters and books of the Bible. I've read the Bible, I don't know how many times, numerous times from cover to cover. Read it. One year, I read a a book of the Bible every single day. Do you want to have victory over idolatry? That's where it starts. Don't complain if you're not willing to go there because victory is right there at your fingertips. But it takes making a choice to be in the Word and then choosing daily. I'm going to follow God. He is my God. And we cast the false gods away and we repent. We respond to God's warnings with repentance when they do come. Now, Kyle Eidelman just gives this really cool little story, and I thought I wanted to close with this and then pray. He says this, sometimes I'm in a hurry in the morning, and I button my shirt all wrong. Has this ever happened to you? Like everybody else, I take it from the top. I push that button through the slot on the other side, except that in my haste, I chose the wrong slot. I don't recognize my mistake until I get to the bottom and realize everything is out of line. If you get to the bottom, then everything else tends, or no, he says, if you get to the bottom right, then everything else tends to fall into place. If you get it wrong, then everything else is going to be out of alignment and you're going to look ridiculous. God has ordered our lives in such a way that devotion to him is the top button. If that relationship is in proper order, then, you, you, you've, then you're going to find that every other relationship, whether family or friend, is going to fall into place and in a way more satisfying way. But if you're wrong on him, you'll get everything else wrong too. See, that, that's what I love about this little story. It's a top-button truth. And the top button verse in the Bible is simply this. Don't be overwhelmed by it. This has been a long message, I know. You know what the key to it all is? This, in your heart of hearts, love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. You get that right, guess what? Your whole life will be in order. Isn't that good? Let me pray for you.